Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk evening with the expert. This talk is being recorded and will be available on the TalkShoe website for one week. Participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk will be available for sale on the Spiral Foundation website at www.thespiralfoundation.org. Participants may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. This talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. Welcome, everyone. Tonight's topic in our Advances in Autism series is Advances in Understanding and Treating Play from a Sensory Integrative Perspective in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder. And hello, I'm uh, Dr. Teresa May Benson. I'm the Executive Director of the Spiral Foundation. And joining us tonight is Dr. Heather Miller-Kahanek. And Dr. Kahanek is an Associate Professor of Occupational Therapy at Sacred Heart University. Uh, her professional interests include pediatric occupational therapy with a specialty in autism and sensory integration and working with families and siblings of children with autism. <clears throat> She's the co-editor of the well-respected text, Autism, a Comprehensive Occupational Therapy Approach, and co-author of Activity Analysis, Creativity, and Playfulness in Pediatric Occupational Therapy, uh, as well as being a co-author of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Sensory Processing Measure, which many of you are familiar with. She completed her doctoral work on sensory integration, praxis, and play in children with autism. So, we're very delighted to have Dr. Kahanek with us to discuss the use of sensory integration to promote play skills in children with autism. And welcome, Dr. Kahanek. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited so, to be talking about this. Yeah, it's a great topic um, and one that I think uh, obviously people are very interested in. Um, so to start off this evening, um, I think you know many of our listeners are occupational therapists. And um, as OTs, you know, we're really taught about the importance of play um, in children with, uh, uh, in, well, in children in general. And um, OTs using a sensory integration frame of reference typically use play in their treatment. But um, many of us don't directly treat play. You know, we don't think about directly treating the play right. problems. Um, and this is an area that you've particularly examined. So I thought we could start our discussion tonight with um, what you found out about what OTs are doing in the area of play. Yeah, sure. Um, so first, what we know about this area in terms of what are OTs doing in, um, in the area of play come from really two surveys of OTs in the United States. And the first one was in 1988, and that was done by Carrie Couch Tanta. And then in 2013, um, Carrie Tanta, myself, and a group of my students redid the survey, basically replicating her old survey, 
with just some slight uh, revisions to it and a few additions. And so what we ended up doing was we surveyed 500 randomly selected AOTA members from the school and the SISs, and we asked them all about what are they doing in relation to using play, and what we got back was um, 198 surveys, and we found out in a nutshell that not much had changed from 1998 to 2013, which wasn't good news because the original survey and then our second survey both found that people weren't really using play a whole lot. And when they were using play, they were primarily using it as a means to an end to get something else. So play was a diversionary tactic or it was, you know, I'm using a play activity, but I'm really not working on play. I'm working on fine motor skills or I'm working on gross motor skills or, you know, my goal is really something else and play is just sort of here to get them to do what I want. Okay. And really only about 38% of the people assessed play and not many of the therapists that responded had goals for play. 20% um, of them had no goals for play at all. And of the people that had goals for play, which was about half, they only had play goals for less than 20% of their caseloads. So very few mm -hmm. children actually had play goals. And um, they, they said that play was related to their choice of frame of reference, and they mostly picked the SI frame of reference, but then they said they weren't really using play. So that, that we found kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, but what they were doing in intervention was, was using play to address other things, um, and some use play as a reward at the end. The most interesting thing that we found was when we asked people qualitatively about the barriers that they had in terms of using play, they um, they talked about how and reimbursement, of course. That you know, we know that they, people feel like, oh, I can't do play because nobody's going to pay for it. But so that wasn't surprising. But the surprising issue was a lot of people made comments about boundary issues um, with other team members. That well, hmm. I can't I can't work on play because the teacher does that, or I can't work on play because that's what the social worker does. And people felt like this wasn't in our our scope of practice, which we found really really interesting because. Wow. It's, you know, we say play is the primary occupation of children, and it's in our practice framework, and it's something that we have a lot of articles about and books about, and it's important um, in, in so much of our writings, especially in the last 20 years or so, and people didn't feel like this was something they could do. So now, the one thing that I do need to say is that the majority of the people who responded were school-based therapists, so that may have something to do with it. Um, but it, it just was an interesting uh, commentary about our, our scope of practice issues in, in the schools perhaps, but you know, more generally than that too. And the other thing that I do want to mention in relation to all this was this wasn't because people didn't have experience and maybe felt like they couldn't you know, um, advocate for themselves. The majority of our respondents had more than 15 years of experience, so this was wow. an experienced group but yet they still <laughs> were feeling like um, this wasn't something they could do. So that we found really interesting and a little bit troublesome. Yeah, that is. Um, you know, like I said, we often are not treating play, and it's clear that there's uh, a number of reasons why people don't feel like they can do that, but uh -huh. to feel like it potentially is not in our scope of practice, that's a little scary. Yeah, <laughs> well, it means that we... Um, those of us that are in education need to do a better job, clearly, of um, making people feel comfortable with that. Right. And, um, and then we all need to do a better job with advocacy, definitely. Right. 
Well, it was one, you know, I've often thought that one of the reasons, um, you know, we may not be addressing play as effectively as we could is, is that, you know, typically OTs are not really taught about what play is. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about play in school, and, you know, like you said, we're told that that's a primary occupation of children, but it's not really broken down for us most of the time right. into, you know, what are the characteristics of play? What kinds of play are there? You know, those kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> and I think that that can make people feel like they they may, in fact, be using play, um, but not really realizing it because they don't really quite know exactly <laughs> right. what it is. Right. You know? Right. And, yeah. and what are the purposes of play? When yeah. is play really purposeful? Um, which is a whole other issue. Right. Um, so one of my questions for you then is, is you know, when do therapists know when a child is playing? Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, there's also been in more recent years with the work that Anita Bundy has done, um, looking at the differences between play, being engaged in play, and playfulness. Right. And I sometimes wonder if therapists are not quite sure about some of those pieces. So right. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, so first, you know, your initial comment about this, this education piece is, is definitely there as well. We found that also in this survey that respondents felt they were not as educated in this area as they would have liked to have been, and um, not many of them had gone to continuing education on play. So that, that's definitely an issue. And play is so complicated and um, so this question is a really good one, and it's a little hard to answer in terms of actually defining play. Mm-hmm. That's proven to be very difficult, and lots of people have tried, and mm-hmm. nobody to, so far has really come up with a perfect definition um, and you know, one that really can fit what humans do throughout all of our different age ranges and also what animals do, because animals play as well, and there's a huge body of research now on animal play. And, of course, their play is a little different than ours. Mm -hmm. And now there's also getting to be a body of research on robotic play, which is kind of a little strange to me. But robots, I guess robots can be um, programmed to play, or at least they call it play. I don't know, you know, really a robot. I don't know if the robot thinks it's playing. But anyway, (laughs) um, the (laughs) the robots are programmed to play. And so um, this is kind of a, you know, it's it's a difficult thing to define if you're talking about all these different kinds of play you know, how do you encompass all of that? And then you add on top of that that play maybe exists more in a continuum than in this discrete sort of yes, no, this is play, this isn't play. Because if you think about it, you can approach your work in a very playful manner, you know, and have a playful attitude about your work. But you can also take your play really, really seriously with almost a work-like attitude to your play. Right. Um, if you think about people that are, you know, playing sort of, uh, sports activities or things like that where they're they're taking it very seriously. So so it's it's hard to kind of put the boundaries around, you know, what is and what isn't play. So I think what most people have ended up doing is creating these lists of, you know, here's the characteristics and the more the thing that you're watching meets these characteristics, the more likely it is to be play. Right. So and the list of characteristics are pretty well accepted and you know, there's there's a whole bunch of different ones of those from different people, but in general, what's agreed upon is that play needs to be flexible, it needs to be fun, it needs to be spontaneous, it needs to be intrinsically motivated, which means that the person playing is motivated to do it and it's not from some external reward that's making them want to do this activity. 
um, play is non-literal or symbolic um, a lot of the time, although then when you think about robots, I don't know about that, <laughs> but, um, and that play generally lacks a functional purpose. So, you know, those are kind of the characteristics. And what's interesting is that when you, there are some studies where they've asked adults and children to watch people playing or not playing, and people can say yes or no pretty accurately, yes, that's play, no, that's play. But we still can't really come up with a good definition of it. Right. So we just sort of know it when we see it. Right. Now, they also would distinguish then play from leisure. Yeah, they? well, I guess some some authors do and some don't. Um, I, I feel like I do because I think that Cause a lot I mean, of the time what adults do is a little different than what yeah. children do. Because, I mean, if someone would be um, reading or um, doing needlework or something like that, that may be leisure for right. them. We, we, I don't think we would call it play, would we? I don't, know that, I don't know that we would call it play. Well, you know, if we go down that list, right, lack it of functional be, purpose, it doesn't really fit because needlework has a functional purpose, I guess, right? Well, that's um, true. So, you know, so I think if, you know, again, if we're thinking about, like, this continuum of play and not play, reading and needlework and, you know, I don't know, making baskets or painting, you know, some of these other things, they maybe are intrinsically motivated. They're maybe, they maybe are fun and flexible, but, you know, maybe they don't meet all the different criteria. Right. So, so it may be on that criteria or on that continuum. On the continuum, you know, a little bit further away from play. Right. I, I generally think about what adults do as leisure is a little bit different than what kids do as play. Well, I, and maybe part of it is is that issue of playfulness. Yeah, definitely. Because so it, that attitude. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it, it may be considered play. Maybe the person sees it as some aspect of play, but doesn't consider it to be playful. Yeah, well, that's definitely possible. Well, that comes back to, um, you know, if we talk about play in in the realm of OT, then we say play is an occupation. Mm-hmm. And as an occupation, it has to be meaningful to the person. Right. And we can attribute lots of different meanings to what we're doing. And so then, you know, that comes back to this attitude. Am I, am I thinking of this as something that's play in the meaning I make of it? Or am I thinking of it more like work? So somebody doing needlepoint could be doing it to sell. Right you know, versus doing it for, you know, a leisure activity that might be leaning more towards the play or playful end versus more towards the work end for the same activity. So there's that meaning piece with us in OT that's not really well um, explored in most of the definitions because most of the people writing these definitions aren't OTs. Right. Um, but so this is kind of exciting, though. There's a group of OTs in Austria, oh. and um, they're doing a Delphi study well, I guess it's multiple steps. I don't know a lot about Delphi studies, but so multiple steps. And anyway, the idea of this process that they're going through is to talk to a lot of different people, um, including a lot of experts in play, and come to a consensus definition. And their idea is to come to a consensus definition that will fit animal play, human play, and robot play, but they're OTs doing it. So Mm. hopefully it will have a little more of the flavor of what we think about when we are thinking about play. So stay tuned for that. I don't know yeah. where it's going to be published or when, but um, it's in the works. Well, and I think just what we've been talking about kind of brings us to the next question in that, you know, all play is not the same. And um, as we just were talking about, it's not the same across the age span. 
And right. even within children, a child might engage in uh, one type of play and not another, and another child may engage in one type of play but not another. And so, you know, just we can't really define play by the specific kind of activity right. that the child is engaged in, which gets back to exactly what you were just saying. Right. Right. Um, but really they have... Yeah, it gets real complicated. Now, they have looked at this in kids, and um, I know that they have generally kind of uh, classified um, play. So can you give us sort of a little quick overview of different types of play? Because I think that really uh, begins to inform us then about the population of children with ASD. Yeah, definitely. So, again, there's lots of different people that have written on this, and um, there's different lists of the categories, depending on who you will read or, or listen to, um, but there's some common ones that you see over and over again. So some of the common categories you'll see are object play or manipulation play. So that's you know when there is some sort of object that's being physically manipulated with the hands and fingers, or you know the object is being used in some way in play. Um, you'll hear a lot about sensory motor play, which is what it sounds like, people are engaging in activities, well, not necessarily people, children, I guess, <laughs> engaging in activities that, that provide sensation to the body. Um, so, you know, more like jumping or rolling or, um, you know, playing with food, let's say, in it for the feel of the food, those kinds of things. Um, then there's functional play, which is using the objects the way they're intended. So if somebody has a toy car and they roll the car back and forth, that would be functional play. They're using the car like it's supposed to be used. And then we have, you know, pretend play or symbolic play, it's sometimes called. And that would be things like I have a plastic banana and I'm going to use it as a telephone, right? I'm pretending it's something else. And then we also have role play within that category where I'm pretending myself to be someone else. Um, and then we have rough and tumble play, which is generally, you know, kind of outdoor, not always outdoor, but um, you think of that as, as children that are a little bit older that are kind of roughhousing and wrestling and, and um and really, you know, being very physical with each other. And sometimes it looks like they're getting maybe a little bit aggressive, but it's really not aggressive. It's actually all for fun. But it can look very competitive and can sometimes look a little aggressive. Um, and then we have games with rules, and those are, you know, kind of our board games and our games of soccer and, you know, those all the games that have all these elaborate rules. And, you know, those are kind of the typical terms that you see in a lot of the different category schemes. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I want to just let people know about is there's a National Institute for Play, oh. and they have different categories that are kind of interesting, and so I just want to whip through those really quickly, too. So they talk about attunement play, body play, object play, social play, imaginative or pretend play, storytelling, narrative play, and creative play. And so I'll, I'll go through each of those, and, and they overlap a little bit with some of the prior categories that we already talked about, but... It's just interesting the way this Institute for Play is, is lumping things together. So attunement play is that um, it seems like the way they're defining it, uh, very infant-toddler based, and it's that interaction between the parent and the infant or toddler. So playing things like peekaboo and, you know, um, it's that, you know, I, we're, we're making connections with each other and kind of taking turns through play. Right. And then um, body play is kind of what we think of, I think, as sensory motor play and rough and tumble play put together. And then they have the object play, which would be similar to using toys and objects. And then they have social play, which is play with peers. So I think that could be lots of, of different of 
categories that we already had mentioned because right. you can do a lot of those things in a social way. Then imaginative pretend is similar to what we had already mentioned. But they add this storytelling narrative play, which is just about like making up stories, writing stories, acting out stories. So related to the pretend play, but really more about narrative and storytelling. Hmm. And they carry that one out um, past childhood because, you know, adults can make up stories and act out stories. And, and well, then, cre- yeah. yeah, and creative play then for them is, I think, some of the things we think of as more leisure. So things that are really artistic, um, maybe things like painting or drawing or making things out of clay or that kind of, so they would call that creative play. So it's just another different category scheme. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I had not heard about that. Yeah, I think they're trying to do, there's not a lot of research behind it. It's just, I think, somebody's ideas. But um, but they're working towards having research behind it. That's part of their mission. So, mm-hmm. um, What's the name of the organization? It's um, National Institute for Play. Oh, and they, have, oh. they have a website. And um, that was that's one of my things at the end for uh, resources for people. So National yeah. Institute for Play. Excellent. So the well, other thing in relation to these categories, as you mentioned, that just, you know, there's a lot of research that kids move through stages that you mm-hmm. know play develops over time, and and there's different categories that are more prominent at different ages, and in in some instances by gender, different categories are more or less prominent, um, and so you know just that's something else to keep in the back of your head that you know, and I think we all know this as OTs, right? That Girls and boys might like to play different things, not always, but they might, and kids of different ages. You know, we know all about child development and the developmental frame of reference that we're going to have to be attuned to the age of the child and what's typical for that age in terms of their play. So, Right. Yeah, I mean, I talk about play quite a bit in uh, some of my Praxis courses. Yeah. Um, and how, especially in those um, early years, in the first couple of years of life, um, there's a real correlation between the um, play that children do and their praxis development. Yeah. So they they really match up, which yeah. I think um, we're going to talk a little bit about that relationship here in a few minutes. But yeah, and, um, and definitely so, there's that link with cognition as well, right? If everybody thinks back to you know their intro to psych and Piaget, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> I mean exactly. we have all the links between cognitive development and play, and those are are really strong also. So exactly. Um, so I know we've we've talked uh, just I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but kind of getting into our uh, kids with uh, ASD, um, yeah. we know that play skills are problematic for these kids. There's tons and tons of literature about that. Um, but um, before we get into that population, one more quick thing I, w- I wanted us to talk about is I know you've um, done some work looking at what typical children want to do, like preferences for typical children. And I thought that would be really good information to inform us about what areas of play we might want to examine uh, or talk about in kids with ASD. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, it's really, really important. So two things that I've been involved with that sort of helped to understand this a little bit. And the first one was some qualitative work where we actually interviewed children to ask them about their perceptions of play and their preferences, we were really surprised when we looked that there was not a lot of work in this area. We thought, wow, there's all this literature on play and nobody really has bothered to ask kids what they think. That's kind of surprising. <laughs> um, and I, I know that you know children can't always necessarily answer 
thoroughly or well, if, especially if they're really young. But uh, we talked to kids age 7 to 11, and we ended up interviewing 10 of them. It was um, six girls and four boys. And um, they actually were able to answer pretty pretty well. Um, we asked them about why they play what they play, what do they like to play, um, you know, who do they like to play with, where do they like to play, all the basic kinds of things you know, about about their play preferences. And, mm-hmm. and um, basically what it all came down to for them is that what they choose to play is what they think is fun, which is not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> and they all use the word fun, and they – you know, they came around to what makes something fun in a variety of different ways, um, but they related fun to being happy, to not being bored. There was definitely this emotional component to it, and that part I think is really important, and we need to remember that and pay attention to that when we're working with the kids on the spectrum. So, you know, the typical kids play is fun, um, and they're happy, and they're having good emotional responses to it. And then these you know, typical kids age 7 to 11, they were reporting at that age, which is the age of games with rules. So not surprisingly, their favorite games were sports and tag and board games, computer games, video games, things that we would expect at that age. Um, and this group uh, really preferred outdoor play and really preferred play with peers. So again, not surprising based on their age. That was kind of what we would expect for, you know, the 7 to 11 year age range. Um, but what was really interesting, because it's something we talk about in SI all the time, is this idea of the just right challenge. I mean, this is a huge thing in, in OT and in SI in particular, that what we're trying to do in our sessions with kids is come up with this just right challenge. And the kids talked about, they didn't, you know, they didn't know that term, but they talked about what made something fun and what made it play was when it wasn't too hard and it wasn't too easy, when it was just right, but a little bit of a challenge. And <laughs> So that was just perfect. I was just like, yeah, we know this. <laughs> so, um, and they also related their this um, challenge level to being with others as well. So they, you know, some of the kids talked about being with their younger siblings, and you know, what they like to the younger siblings like to play is too easy for them, and but sometimes they'll do it just because they want to be with other people. And um, and the other thing that was really interesting was they, because we always think, you know, when we talk about child directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, intervention, that that means that the child, or it might mean that the child needs to pick out or choose right. what to do. And they, this group, and again, not a huge group, but they said that anyone could choose what to play as long as it was fun. They didn't really care who, who chose. And it could be an adult, too. It didn't have to be a kid. The adult could choose as long as the adult was fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was awesome. Um, and they had some really interesting things to say about adults playing. And this part varied pretty considerably between the 10 kids. So I think this has to do with the adults they know <laughs> uh-huh. and whether the adults they know were playful or not. But some of them said that adults could play just as well as kids. And some of them said adults couldn't play at all, that they don't know how. And <laughs> um, But none of them said they would prefer to play with adults than kids. <laughs> so, um, so I think, you know, so in terms of what does that tell us, that tells us we need to be playful and fun to be with our kids if we want them to think that we're playing and having fun. Um, and this issue of the just right challenge is, was really, really important. Right. And, and then um, the second thing that we did was we had a little study on play preferences, and this was a, a, with a parent questionnaire, and we had 166 kids, and um, some with disabilities and some without, and the play questionnaire was based on Takata's work from years ago. So we had all the different kinds of play from her old play history and um, 
and we were just really trying to see, you know, did the kids with and without disabilities prefer different things? Now, granted, this mm. was their parents reporting, not the kids reporting for themselves, but we figured, you know, hopefully parents of younger children know what they're playing or at least have a pretty good idea of what they're playing. So these were kids three to seven years old, and um, we found a lot of similarities between the two groups, but what we found that was different, and it wasn't terribly surprising, was that the children that had um, disabilities, and the disabilities that we were including were um, not motor disabilities like cerebral palsy. These were kids with developmental delays, ADHD, um, sensory processing problems, um, ASD, you know, those kinds of issues where there, okay. there weren't motor concerns okay. or, or not major motor concerns anyway. <laughs> um, but these kids had higher preferences reported by their parents for rough and tumble play and object exploration. So object exploration being generally a kind of play that would be for younger children hmm. um, or more common in younger children and rough and tumble play being you know, highly sensory motor, so kind of not surprising there. And then um, they did not have, they didn't report preferences in the developmental delay group for drawing, coloring, and construction play and doll play. The typically developing kids liked those things better. So, you know, the drawing and coloring, right, that takes more fine motor skill. Construction takes right. more fine motor skill. Um, and doll plays pretend, so that's higher level. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't necessarily surprising that we found these differences, but there hadn't been a lot of research. Um, in this population about the differences between kids with and without these disabilities in terms of their play. So that right. was kind of interesting to find out. Um, and then in terms of pretend play, the one thing that was kind of interesting was that in the younger kids, the typically developing kids preferred pretend play to the developmentally delayed kids. But by seven years old, the developmentally delayed kids preferred pretend play, and the typical kids were kind of done with it by then. <laughs> so, huh. um, so that was sort of interesting also. And the typical children had a little bit more of a preference reported for playing with friends than the kids with the developmental delays. And, you know, I don't, again, because it was parent-reported, is that, that the kids with developmental issues didn't want to play with friends or just didn't have friends. You know, that's kind of hard to say. So, um, but in terms of back to the, you know, the origin of your question, which is what should we be looking for in our population of kids with ASD based on all of this, I think, you know, what we really need to know from them, however we can figure this out, is what do they find fun? And I don't know that that's something that we always ask about. Um, but we need to know what do they find fun who do they have fun with? When do they have fun? Um, you know, what are their family members' perspectives on having fun with this child? Um, and you know, so I, I just don't know that this is a common part of our assessment process, and I think it's really important. No, I think those are really good questions um, in terms of thinking about, you know, what is fun for these children? Because often I think it's what we other people don't think of as being fun for yeah. the age of the child. Yeah, absolutely. They, they and, did some unusual things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. let alone it being maybe what's considered not age appropriate, which right. is kind of funny that somebody's thinking that certain kinds of play may not be age appropriate play. Right, right. Um, but uh, I like this idea, too, of, of when, when, when can you have fun? You know, right. I mean, we kind of as a society have some pretty – strict rules about when you're supposed to have fun or not have fun. Right, 
you know, you don't have fun in school necessarily when you're supposed to well, be not, learning. Well, not anymore anyway. <laughs> no, not anymore anyway. <laughs> I used to have fun in school, but... <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if, if, if that's a piece of it as well. And then I like this idea, too, of, you know, who do they have fun with? Yeah. Um, because often I think that's part of what they're trying to teach these kids is, you know, social skills. Because, like right. you said, oh, it's the social worker who does this or whatever. And it's like, well, they're trying to get them to have fun with other people um, right. when maybe that's not who they have fun with. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So those are all really good questions. I do like, too, um, as we start talking a little bit more about kids on the spectrum, um, kind of just even going back to this idea of um, what is play, and, and some of these, these characteristics of play in regards to kids on the spectrum. I mean, if play is supposed to be <clears throat> fun, it's supposed to be spontaneous, it's supposed to be intrinsically motivated. And oftentimes play, in quotation marks, is being right. taught by ABA methods. <laughs> right. Which, by definition, that cannot possibly be play then. Right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it, that kind of teaching is like none of these things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a huge problem because if you think about, you know, it, for a lot of kids, their lives are pretty um, organized for them, and there's a lot of things that they have to do that they're told to do and made to do. Mm-hmm. But most typical kids have at least some time in their life where they get to do what they want. And right. you know, our kids on the spectrum have probably a lot less of that time than our typical kids. Yeah. And and so much of their time is structured around um, making them be compliant with what an adult wants. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely not what play is all about. So, and, you know, everybody deserves to have some time to just, you know, be themselves. And um, our kids on the spectrum don't really get that a lot. And I, I think that that's, can be a huge problem. So yeah. as we start thinking about how this all can kind of fit into some of our SI um, treatment, because that's the title of our talk. Yeah, where we um, <laughs> um, Play in, in children with autism has been something that's really been researched, um, and we know that it's been a major problem um, for these kids. And so uh, we've talked a little bit about this, but can you just give us a short summary maybe of what the the literature has told us about what play skills in children look like, what are some of their problems, what are some of their strengths, yeah. um, so that as therapists think about treating play um, in this population, what might be some areas per- that they should particularly think about looking at? Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of research in this particular area. Um, and across the board, in every play category I talked about before, there's been some study that has documented that the kids on the spectrum either don't play that way as frequently as typical kids or don't do it as well. So it, it's not that kids on the spectrum don't play, but they play in kind of a qualitatively different way than the typical kids play. Um, in every single category of play. But there's a lot of research um, that they have problems with object play. They have particular problems with pretend play, and I, I think we know this as OTs. Um, this is probably where the majority of the research is, that the mm-hmm. issue of pretending is, is really, really hard for them. 
um, kind of related to their language skills too because those are both symbolic skills and um, something that's not well developed for them. Uh, they have a strong preference for sensory motor play, but they do it almost you know, to the exclusion of everything else, way past an age where we would expect our typical kids to be doing it. You know, all, all kids go through sensory motor play stage, um, but generally by the time they're into preschool, they're kind of heading out of that into <laughs> other kinds of play and more pretend play. But our kids on the spectrum may stay really kind of stuck in that sensory motor play phase for years. That's, that's really um, what is most interesting to them. Right. And then, you know, as part of their diagnostic criteria, they have re repetitive behavior. So the thing we see probably most often is that their play is really repetitive, <laughs> which um, is not surprising. So whatever it is that they figure out to do, they do it over and over and over again, usually in the exact same way without changing anything at all. And sometimes they're even really resistant to anyone else changing anything. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a perfect example of this. I just had a little guy in who was six. And um, what he was doing was taking these cardboard bricks and he lined them up in a row. So it looked a little bit like a train in his mind. It was a train. And he was pushing the whole row of bricks back and forth one direction and then the other. And we were watching him for a reason for a long period of time. And so we let this go for a long period of time. This wasn't a treatment session. It was an observation. So we just watched him. So for 10 minutes straight, he wow. pushed these bricks back and forth the exact same way. And then eventually I just, I wanted to see what would happen. I started to try to jump in like, all right, well, so this is a train. What if we put a person on the train? And I put a little doll on top of the bricks and he was having none of that doll had to go. And well, what if we put, um, where the train was, you could push something off the edge. So I put something at the edge of the train, and well, let's push something off the edge and make it fall down. And no, he wasn't having any of that. And <laughs> you know, I, I tried a whole bunch of different things to, to try to expand what he was doing, even just a little bit. And it was just not part of what he was playing. He had, an, and he didn't want any part of playing with me either. <laughs> so, so the other piece of their play issues is that when they're playing something that they're really enjoying, they could care less sometimes whether anybody's playing with them or not. Right. Um, so, you know, they're kind of in their own thing and, and enjoying it for some reason. Um, and I, I think what's really interesting about this and really important work, if people haven't read this, um, it's going back a ways, I want to say like early 2000s, but Susan Spitzer's work with autism, she did some observational work in the home and really spent a lot of time watching the kids on the spectrum play and trying to figure out you know, as an OT where we're, we're trying to determine what is the meaning of what they're doing, she was really trying to figure out what's the meaning of what they're playing. And so one of the examples she gave in her work, in her papers, um, there was this one, I think it was a little girl, that was playing Barbie dolls. And so if I say playing Barbie dolls to this group, right, we can all imagine a Barbie doll and we all know what playing Barbie dolls means. We have sort of a shared understanding of playing Barbie dolls based on our own childhood and that probably includes, you know, making them walk and making them talk and maybe we, you know, change their clothes and maybe they drive in the Barbie car and maybe they go in the Barbie house. And right, we have all these things we do with Barbies. But what this kid was doing with the Barbies was sitting in the doorway of the kitchen with two Barbies, one in each hand, and like kind of playing drumsticks with them on the floor. Yeah. And so, okay, we would watch that and say, you know, is that even play? Um, what, what Dr. Spitzer was able to figure out was that for this kid that was play. And what was interesting about what, this kid was doing, what was meaningful for this kid was that it made a very specific sound because this, this child only did the drumming Barbies in that exact spot. 
while mm-hmm. the family was in the kitchen doing, you know, family dinner kinds of things. And the kid was sitting there, you know, playing these Barbie drums um, in that particular spot to be near the family and also um, because it made a particular sound. So she was able to figure out what it meant for this kid. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it's not typical play like we would think of for most of the rest of us. But for that child, that was meaningful and fun and some, right. something that he or she, I don't remember, I think it was a she, um, went back to over and over and over again um, and clearly enjoyed, you know, it was, and, and wouldn't let anybody alter it or change it in any way. So there was something about that play that was very specifically meaningful for, for that kid. And so we just need to really pay attention to those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. That The kids on the spectrum do play. They just they play differently. And, and some of the kids can pretend, especially if their language skills are a little bit higher, um, you know, they can pretend, especially if you prompt them a little bit to do it, they may not do it on their own, and they may need to be pushed a little bit. I had another little guy, you know, we used to do this thing, and we'd be doing whatever in the SI clinic, and, okay, you know, this is blah, 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 and the, this animal is going over here, and the, the house is on fire near the fireman, and you got to put the fire out. And he would turn around and put his hands on his hips and look at me, I am not a fireman, I'm Peter. <laughs> you know? And so just that, like, I cannot step into this new role at all. Um, and th- so they can be really literal and not able to pretend play in that way. That's really, really common that we'll see that. But but able to play in what at whatever level, you know, they're right. able to do that. So Right. Well I think, you know, when we think about um why these kids have problems with play. You know, uh, we've been talking about a lot of different ways that people have kind of looked at um, why kids with ASD have problems. Um, a lot of the approaches look at social aspects, um, but I think is, and that's something obviously that we as OTs are interested in, but um, from an SI perspective, um, you've done some work on looking at the sensory motor and praxis foundations of play. And so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that because that's yeah. more specific to SI. Yeah, so this, this was kind of fun work. So I was um, really interested in this idea that there's a strong relationship between praxis as we think about it in OT and play in this population because of the issues I had seen with so many of the kids that I was working with, you know, this this repetitiveness in their play and this limited creativity in their play and and also because in this population imitation of others is such a problem. And one of the reasons why I thought this, this was so important and was maybe an avenue for us to learn more about um, so that we could treat it better, is that I had seen this video in my master's program about toddlers playing together, and these were typical toddlers. Um, and there was one article about the study that these videos were from. Anyway, what struck me about these videos that we were shown was that this was all about how toddlers play together and what, what is toddler friendship. And what they were finding is that the way that the toddlers defined, you know, who's my friend and who's not my friend, um, was who did I play in a very imitative fashion with. So the, the toddler friends in this little daycare group that they had videotaped uh, would run around together and take turns imitating each other so exactly it was incredible. I mean, the one the thing that still pops in my head from this video is one little girl's running around the room, the other little girl's running around behind her. They're, it's kind of like a high, uh, follow the leader kind of a game. 
Mm-hmm. And But the one little girl, her pants were falling down that day. So oh. this had nothing to do with the game, but she kept reaching around behind and pulling up her pants. And the other girl behind imitating her was reaching around behind and pulling up her pants. Like that's how completely and totally they were imitating oh. each other. And then I just thought, wow, you know, our little ones on the spectrum can't do that at all. Um, and then... And then because they were taking turns with this imitative play with each other, you know, sometimes you had to be the one to make up the thing that someone else could imitate. And, you know, our little ones on the spectrum can't do that either. So I just got really interested in this whole idea. And, um, you know, because if, if they can't do this, how are they going to develop socially and have friends if this is how, if this is what friends mean when you're a toddler? <laughs> you know, how do you move forward from that? So, um, So this was almost completely missing in the play literature and autism. And even now, there's really kind of only uh, a handful of papers about this at all. Um, so the first thing that I did was um, we had an existing data set that we had from the sensory processing measure. And when we were developing the sensory processing measure and the preschool version, we ended up with data for 162 kids on the spectrum. So I was able to get that data from WPS um, to do my doctoral work. And what I was able to do was something called structural equation modeling, which I'm going to try and explain in a, some kind of simple way because I don't think anybody really cares so much about the statistics. But just so you can understand what I did, um, basically you use the computer and it examines um, these models that you create where you, you are telling the computer what you think the relationships are between groupings of items. So you put these items together and you call it a category and you tell the computer, I think this category is related to this category is related to this category. So you put the models in and then the computer uses your data and it tells you whether or not your data fits that model that you made up. And so you have to make up the model based on theory and we have SI theory. So we we know what we think the relationships might be between, let's say, vestibular and proprioceptive items and praxis and then, you know, but we don't know really what is the relationship between praxis and play. So I had a, a bunch of different options of, of these models of how things could fit and without going through all of them. Basically, um, what we found out was that um, the play and praxis items grouped together into one category. And then the vestibular vision touch and probe items all kind of, they call it loaded together on, in this other category. And then those two groupings were very strongly related to each other. So in terms of our theory, what that's saying is that our vestibular vision, touch and probe, kind of modulation and discrimination sort of uh, processes are very strongly related to play and praxis together. And I, and I think that the reason why the play and praxis lump together in this particular data set is because of the way the items are in the SPM. So I'm not sure that that would always be the case, but in the SPM praxis items, are the ideation items have some items that are kind of play-worded. Mm-hmm. Um, and because this was my doctoral work and I had a whole committee telling me what to do, I wasn't able to move items or change items or, you know, in their categories. So the ideation items and then the play items from the participation section of the tool, I think just were too similar for what I was trying to do. So, But that what that tells us, though, is that um, the sensory items are related to the play and ideation items lumped together. And I think that was really important and something that we hadn't really looked at well before. So, um, And then the, the next 
study that we have about this, Stephanie Bodison just did something recently and um, did something a little bit similar. She had data with the SIPT and the Vineland, and um, some of she used some of the imitative praxis measures from the SIPT. Um, she had the sensory processing measure home form, and she used the ideation items from that and kind of did a similar thing where she was looking at relationships between uh, the different scores on these different areas. In the, and she found moderate correlations between ideation and play and praxis. Um, and so I think where we're headed with all this is that, not surprisingly, anybody that's really familiar with SI theory um, uh -huh. and SI treatment, we I think that we kind of see that the kids that are dyspraxic don't play well. I don't know that that really surprises anybody. Um, but it, you know, we actually have it now in the literature that there's some relationship between our kids with sensory issues and these poor play skills that we see. And then that hopefully, you know, sends us down a different path of treatment than, you know, some of the other kinds of treatment for play that are out there. And I think that also, um, which people are not aware of, is we're looking, we together are looking at play and praxis and um, ideation and sensory processing um, in these preschool children on the spectrum. And um, one of the preliminary findings that we've, we've found um, is that we're also looking at, the diff at play and playfulness. Yeah. And what was interesting is we've, we've found so far, at least in a very small sample, that there's not really a relation, much of a relationship between ideation and playfulness. Right. Which could be very interesting, um, but there may be with play. We haven't looked at that yet. Yeah. But I, yeah. I find, I think that's so interesting that I think we may find that these kids on the spectrum, in fact, are more playful than what we think they are. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of Anita Bundy's study. With, didn't she, she looked at playfulness and compare yeah. kids with and without the um, SI issues. Yes. And they were pretty similar, right? That yes. They were still playful, so that attitude is there. Right. You but know, they but just, yeah, they uh, just did different activities. They just did different activities. So, yeah. you know, that so that may be the praxis piece. But, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's interesting. So I think um, that brings us then really to intervention, and we've got about 10 minutes left. Oh, I gotta talk fast. Okay. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> I'm good at that. That's good. Um, <laughs> so you know, this brings us to you know, what do we do about it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and there's lots of different kinds of uh, interventions for play, from ABA to floor time and SI. And um, I'm, there's a number of different kinds of strategies I think that therapists can use uh, to promote play. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about some of the approaches that are out there, and then specifically, are there some specific um, strategies, especially around SI, that therapists could use to help promote some of these different aspects of, of play in this population? Definitely. Um, so first thing I have to say here is that I'm really biased, so I want to be <laughs> honest with people right from the get-go. Um, I'm really biased against the ABA-type interventions to teach mm -hmm. play, and I'll explain why, and, and Teresa kind of hinted at that earlier already. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm very much for the more play-based kinds of approaches, so I'll just start with that. So, you know, the issue is these the pure ABA, you know, discrete trial kinds of approaches to teaching play basically train a child to engage in a play act 
by rewarding that behavior over multiple trials. So, but if you think about, you know, what we talked about earlier about what makes something play, then this doesn't really teach the child to play. It teaches them to imitate. So, and that's important. Imitation is nice, but to make that leap then to play, you know, that's not going to do it. So to, to really get a child to play, you really have to use a play-based approach. And floor time is one way, and there's, there are others. But the, in the floor time approach, what's great is that um, it's, it's really um, parent-friendly, for one thing, and you get the parents involved. And I think that's hugely important because we're not with the kids all the time. You know, maybe we're with them, I don't know, if we're lucky, an hour, maybe two hours a week. I don't, I don't know if people are maybe with them more than that. But you know, we're, we're not with them all the time. And getting a parent involved in playing with their child and kind of teaching the parent how to do some of the strategies that we'll talk about in a minute um, can be really helpful so that it's, it's happening more often and we know that they need repetition in, in order to really, you know, kind of take something on and learn it and use it. So that, I think, is really important about floor time. But the other thing that's really important about floor time is it's very respectful. And you know, back to this issue about the kids on the spectrum having their whole lives about adult compliance um, and people constantly trying to change them and change how they are and change how they behave and change what they do. I personally, again, I'm biased. I find that very disrespectful to them as human beings. And if we're going to try to respect them as people and take them where they're at, um, and, and help them have some enjoyment and fun in their life, then mm-hmm. we need to come at them from that place and not, I'm trying to change you. <laughs> and right. um, so anyway, so that's my bias. So um, in the, the floor time methods, you know, it's, it's really watching what is interesting to the child, following the child's lead, um, engaging with what they're doing. And, you know, there's strategies about really just basically just following the child around and imitating what the child does, no matter how ridiculous you feel doing it. Um, that, and there's studies that show that an adult imitating the child for a certain period of time can be really, really, really helpful. Um, that's one of the things that is the strongest result across a bunch of studies when they looked at specific strategies of how to get a child on the spectrum to start to play more and interact more with another person is the adult imitating the child completely. And that means you make no demands on this kid whatsoever. You do exactly what they do. And you may decide, I'm going to do this for 15 minutes. You may decide, I'm going to do it for half an hour. Um, and this isn't exactly floor time, but it fits well with, with what the floor time people do. And you can teach parents this kind of within the floor time sessions also. Because um, in, in floor time, you're really you're playing with the child at their level and imitating them is one piece of that. You're accepting what they're doing and I'm going to do what you're doing. So um, the kids will start to notice that you're imitating them. They may make better eye eye contact with you. Um, Just kind of like, hey, what's this person doing? Why are they imitating me? Especially if what they're doing is unusual and then, you know, they've never seen you do these unusual things too. It really captures their attention and just creates this um, interaction between the, the two, you know, you and the child or the parent and the child either way. Um, so that can be really, really helpful. And then another piece of floor time that also can be very helpful, we can use this in SI sessions or even in school-based sessions, um, is to very playfully block what they're doing, um, not to the point of causing a tantrum. So this requires a lot of observation and really good intuition, and you kind of have to know the kid pretty well. But you know, if they're kind of stuck on doing something, 
you have to do it with a really playful attitude, not a I'm trying to stop you from doing this attitude, but you're really trying to make a game out of it. But you're going to block or tweak or change what they're doing just a little and maybe only for a second. So like I was talking about with the kid with the, with the blocks on a train, you know, I put a doll on top of his train. He knocked it off. He didn't like it. But I came back with something else and in a very playful, silly way. And another example of this, I used to have a, a little guy that would come into my clinic and he wouldn't come into the SI room. He would run. We had It was sort of a square around the office, and he had to run the square, and he had to do it multiple times before he would ever come in the room. And if I stopped him, we would have a tantrum. So after that happened once, I never did it again. <laughs> um, and at the beginning of our session, probably a good 15 minutes at the beginning of every session was him running around the square and then eventually me building these giant obstacle things for him to have to go over and through and under in the hallway as he was running around the square. And so, it's, again, it's that playful blocking. I didn't make it like, no, you can't do this. I didn't make it, um, you know, I'm going to stop you or, cha you know, change what you're doing, but just a, a little teeny tweak. And over weeks and weeks and weeks, we went from I put one bolster in the way that he had to step over to now we have this huge mountain of stuff <laughs> that he's got to climb over to keep doing this, you know, running. And then eventually we didn't need to play this at all, and we went right into the room. So. But it's, it's this idea of, like, I'm respecting you where you're at. I'm going to make the game something that you can have fun with, but I'm going to push you just a little because right. if they keep doing the same thing over and over again, that's not going to help either. So, And then the other piece of this is we have to really kind of try to teach creativity and spontaneity, um, especially if we have kids that have the language to do this. And so, you know, there are things like um, – asking people crazy, silly ideas. Like let's say you have a kid that um, is really into a particular Disney storyline or maybe he knows every Disney movie and you know all the Disney movies too. And he's really stuck in like, you have to do this just this way. So then you can start to ask crazy questions like, well, what would happen if Aladdin met Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? What would that story be? Or, you know, and just make it silly and see, can they come up with anything? Or, you know, if you have a kid that's obsessed with frogs, what would happen if we put this frog in a spaceship and send him to the moon? Or if you have somebody who can draw basic things, let's try to draw an elephant that looks like a dolphin. What would that look like? Or somebody that you're working on handwriting with, instead of writing real words, write silly words. Like, you know, if you wrote um, like H-P-T-I-C-U-P-I-L, and then, you know, so it's a bunch of random letters that don't make a word, and it would sound ridiculous if you sound it out, then you sound it out and sound ridiculous, and with a silly voice, that becomes really funny. And then now you can try to, well, what does that word mean? What does it sound like? Let's make up what that word means. And, right. and again, you, you know, this won't work for all the kids. This, these are for the kids that are a little bit higher level. But we need to really try to help them be silly, be spontaneous, be creative. That's what play is all about. And they may not get there on their own. And, the, you know, the, the more silly we can be, I think, the more we can help get them there. Yeah, and I think our us demonstrating and modeling that, Playfulness um, can be a really good thing, yeah. Um, and not not being too serious, so that they can learn um, how to respond to some of those changes to things yeah. that they're doing in a playful way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this all has to be really kind of silly, and um, you know, this is this is every well, the therapist using their therapeutic use of self too. You know what what's going to get this kid engaged with you. For some kids, it's if you use really silly tone of voice. Mm -hmm. um, for some kids, it's if you use silly words. 
you know, in, in an SI clinic, you can get away with things that you can't get away with, let's say, in the schools. Right. And, and we, need, we need to be open. So here's an, this is an example. I've used this other time, so if anybody heard this before, I apologize. But this one little guy just always pops in my head. He was um, really getting a rise out of the word poop in school and with, you know, all the adults because, you know, you're not supposed to say poop and, you know, everybody would, he'd get these big reactions out of poop. And so he would come into the clinic and start saying stuff about poop and whatever. I would, we finally, I pulled the parent and I was like, are you okay with me just using the word poop? Because I'm okay with poop and I just want this to not be a thing. And so we ended up for a couple of weeks, we drew poop with brown crayons. We wrote the word poop. We talked about poop. We made up poop obstacle courses where every step you had to say the word poop or you had to say, you know, <laughs> we we had this whole thing with like weird sounds of how do you say it so hello and poop and he liked how that sounded you know making silly voices we made up poop songs and not every parent's going to be okay with that but you're again you're giving the child permission to be who he is and that you know it's it's okay and we can be silly around this if you think this is funny I think it's funny too <laughs> right? right so so you have to sometimes step out of the therapist box a little bit too I think and be willing to be a little ridiculous and you know not all therapists are able to really let themselves be silly and feel ridiculous either so that's work for us to to learn how to do that and try to do that more right Right. well and I think as as people think about because our time is just about up here um, I think as people think about treating play I think what we've talked about here is is that there are many aspects of the play experience that we can address and be treating play. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think if you know people kind of I think may get um, hung up on teaching or treating the play task, right? When in fact you may be working on playfulness. You may right. be working on the child's ability to imitate, to be able to be flexible, to you know be able to self-initiate um, a play activity. Um, you know there may be a lot of these pieces that we've talked about this evening that go into treating play, and the SI um, environment is is just such a That's wonderful perfect. place. Yeah, perfect for that. Yeah. So my last question, and then we'll wrap up um, because it's about eight o'clock. Is um, some training resources. um, What might you recommend for therapists to get more information about this area? Yeah. So um, there's there's a bunch of good things. There's um, a few that are just more generally related to play, not necessarily to ASD. Um, I mentioned earlier the National Institute for Play, so they have a great website. Um, so it's nas- it's the National Institute for Play. If you Google that, you'll find it. Um, there's something called the U.S. Play Coalition, and they have an annual play conference, usually in April, and they're doing some, some good research on play. Again, not necessarily related to autism, but just play in general. Um, so that's a, a good resource. And then probably the Oh, uh, there's one more conference. There's a conference next March called The Power of Play that's all about play and inclusion, so you can Google that. I think it's um, in North Carolina next March. And then the the best thing is there's this free journal, and not everybody knows about this, but the journal is called the American Journal of Play, and if you Google that, it's a free journal. Their stuff is online. You can download the PDFs. 
our articles, and that's a great resource. And um, again, just general information about play. Um, and then, you know, if people are interested in learning more about the specific floor time model, um, they have training and certification. They have a bunch of courses. And there's also something called the Play Project, and they have training and certification. And both of those are specifically for kids on the spectrum. Um, and then, you know, there's all of our OT textbooks and articles, and some of them we've talked about today. So the, right. the biggies, if, if you don't have these and are interested, um, Dr. Parham um, has a book called Play and Occupational Therapy for Children that has information about play assessment and treatment specific to OT. Um, Teresa mentioned at the beginning the activity analysis, creativity, and playfulness yep. in OT book. Um, that, again, is not specific to ASD, but it's about using play in OT sessions and, and goes into more detail about a lot of the things we talked about tonight. Yep. And then specific to autism, the AOTA autism book, um, there's two chapters about play, um, one of them that Teresa wrote, yep. and those are excellent. And so those are resources for you all as well. And then, you know, there's um, I would say be on the lookout for that uh, paper from the people in Austria about the definition of play. I don't know where that will turn up. Right. Um, and there will be hopefully sometime in the next year a systematic review on play strategies um, that I've been working on with um, Stephanie Bodison and Susan Spitzer. So um, that may be an age out or may not be, and we're not sure yet, but hopefully in the next year or two, um, that one will be out. And um, that's really just talking about some of the things I mentioned earlier, these specific strategies about imitating the child, playfully blocking the child, um, and, and some of the other things we do in activity analysis in terms of modifying tasks and environments and how helpful that can be for helping the kids on the spectrum play. Right. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Um, so we have just a few people um, <clears throat> who are on the phone. Um, anyone who's listening in on their computer, if you have any questions, please feel free to type them in. We'll, we'll give you just a minute here. I'm going to open up the phone lines for the uh, handful or so of people who are on the phone. If you are just uh, calling in on the phone, can you please um, mute your phone if, you're not, uh, if you don't have any questions so we don't get a ton of background noise? Otherwise, I'll have to close everybody off. Okay, so we're open. If anyone has questions, if you're on the phone, you have a question, please feel free to speak up. If you're on the computer. Questions? Oh. Yeah? Heather? Yeah. It's Erin. Hi. Um, hi. My question is, um, for the floor time, what ages does that work best for? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know what they officially say, but I think myself personally, it's really great for the preschoolers mm -hmm. um, and maybe kind of late toddlers, um, but definitely preschoolers. That's where I really see that working very well. Yeah, I think it was originally designed for preschoolers, uh. um, and they've used it kind of through probably – well, I mean, all ages, but I'd say I don't see it being used too much past about 9 or 10 maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think by then you kind of feel like, okay, let's try something else. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, we have a question, Heather, um, wanting to know if your doctoral work is published and where that might be. Um, it is. It was in, oh, let's see what year. I think 2015. I should know this, shouldn't I? Hold on one sec. <laughs> um, it was 20, let's see. It, it, wasn't 20, it, wasn't 20, it wasn't 2015. It was 2013. Oh, my God, time is just flying by. Yeah, it was OTJR 2013. Um, uh, and it's called a preliminary investigation of the relationship between sensory processing and social play and autism spectrum disorder. That is a mouthful. Yeah, and if um, if you go to Google Scholar and you Google Kahanic autism and play, you'll get um, the articles that Heather's been talking about tonight that she's been involved in. Um, will all come up. Uh, the references for those will all come up. Oh. All right, are there any other questions for people? Doesn't look like it. All right, well, our time is uh, now up, and we'd like to thank you all for joining us. Uh, watch our website and mailing list for more details. Thank you very much, Dr. Kahanek. Thank you. Uh, and thank you very much to our participants for joining yeah. us for our live talk, um, Advances in Autism series. And uh, watch our website, www.thespiralfoundation.org, for our next live talk presentation and to obtain copies of past programs. And everybody have a great evening. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.